0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by SuperNet. I'm Joe Dworski, president of Retail Banking for SuperNet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit card solutions for the cannabis industry, both for merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like yourself on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is a seasoned executive with over 30 years of experience in banking and financial services. She has many achievements under her belt, including founding the American Deposit Management Company, which Kelly grew to over $6 billion in assets under administration and working with over 500 financial institutions nationwide before her successful exit in 2020. Earlier in her career, Kelly also founded a de novo bank called First Wisconsin Bank and Trust Company. Once again, she led the efforts of building the bank to become one of the fastest growing banks in the state's history before selling the bank in 2008. Over the years, Kelly's leadership has earned her several honors, including the Business Journal's Woman of Influence, U.S. Chamber of Commerce Business Person of the Year, Future 50 CEO. Business Journal's Entrepreneur of the Year, and 40 Under 40 Award. Currently, Kelly is a partner with Patriot Financial Partners, a private equity firm focused on investing in community banks, thrifts, and financial service-related companies across the U.S. Please welcome Kelly Brown to the show. Kelly, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks, Joe. Good to be here.
0: Well, thank you again, and it's great that we finally were able to uh, get you on a calendar I wanted to jump in but I wanted to take a step back. Can we just take a step back and talk about your earlier days in banking when you founded First Wisconsin Bank and Trust Company? And obviously I guess that had helped lead to your your founding of ADM.
1: You know, I started my banking career as a personal banker, no banking experience whatsoever. Couldn't balance a checkbook, didn't didn't know what a debit or a credit was, but I got a job in a bank. And I got a job in a bank because a teller Literally changed my life when I was nineteen, and like many probably of your listeners and many people out there, I you know um, didn't have any type of financial education in my home growing up. racked up a ton of credit card debt, went away to college and got kicked out, and found myself in a very precarious position because I didn't know how to get out of that situation until a bank teller was kind enough to educate me and i took her advice i've never been in debt since and i made it my life's mission to help people find financial freedom and work in the banking industry to to further that cause for bankers as servant leaders to help other people realize their dreams and get out of debt
0: wow that's a that's a great uh, beginning of your how you got into the banking sector
1: yeah it's not typical I'm not one of those that you hear it's like, oh, I had this, you know, silver spoon and everything was roses and butterflies because let me tell you, it was a freaking grind.
0: It sounds like a good opening to a book. I mean, you, might, you might be writing the book. Uh, uh, you know, sorry, know sorry, sorry. I
1: keep, so many people have asked me that and maybe one day I will, but, you know, I'm so busy right now. It's like... Right. One day, one day.
0: No, it it sounds, listen, it's very intriguing. You know, it leads you to want to learn more and that's, you know, why we're here today. So we're going to learn more about, you know, your success and how that led to, you know, uh, ADM and so forth uh, and your thoughts on what's going on in today's uh, banking environments. So you started your career, you know, in the banking sector. How did you found First Wisconsin Bank and Trust? What what was the catalyst behind that?
1: You know, I think that the easiest way to put it is, you know, oftentimes bankers are off-putting and a lot of commercial customers or even just regular everyday Joe, pail, Joe lunch pail people are intimidated by bankers. And I, I just found myself as the person that wasn't intimidating because I'm just like everybody else and had a lot of success with getting customers to come to the bank and helped grow the bank that I was with. For many years. I really enjoyed managing teams, had a lot of fun. When the opportunity came, when my bank was bought, um, they of course wanted me to stay and sign an agreement that I was going to stay and help make other people a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I'm like, well, wait a minute. I was 29 years old and I'm like, I want to start my own bank and have no clue how to do that. They had no clue how to raise capital, had no clue how to even you know, get started with that, especially with the background that I had. But I figured if every if someone else did it, I could do it. And we did. And I grabbed a couple of friends of mine in the banking industry. We went out and raised capital. We had a great partner. We started our own bank. It was crazy. And I think back now, and it's almost like when you're so young and naive, you don't realize the (laughs) risk. You know, you just kind of do it. It was like a master's degree in banking on steroids. I mean, it it truly is an experience that not many people in banking have ever had. um, And I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but the most rewarding at that time.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, kids are fearless. So, you know, when you're young, you're fearless, you know, and you try things that you may not try when you're at our stage in our careers. That's right. So so that is, um, you know, that's, you know, very exciting to hear. And obviously that led to um, a lot of success. It was what, the fastest growing bank in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin.
1: Yeah. In Wisconsin at the time. And we ended up selling it December 31st, 2008. And then I created at the time when we had the bank, I had a large depositor, which I'm sure many of your listeners, especially in cannabis and, and and those related industries are sitting on a lot of cash, but I had a lot of large depositors that wanted their funds protected. And at the time, FDIC insurance was, you know, per tax ID number at $100,000. And so if you have a depositor with 10 million, how do you protect it? Right. And I created something haphazardly only because out of like desperation to help a customer, And that product was so successful that when we sold the bank and I started the the next bank, we took that concept and did it at the First Wisconsin. And then when we sold First Wisconsin, I took that concept and made it into a business. And that was the American Deposit Management Company, which I founded and was CEO for just under 15 years and sold that in in 2020.
0: Okay. So great. So that was the catalyst. First Wisconsin Bank was the catalyst, if you will. Of ADM or the mother, if you will.
1: Yeah, uh, it was.
0: Gave birth to ADM because of your client's need.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was really just thinking about what customers need, not what the bank needs. Like, what do customers need? And I think that's one of the problems in banking today is we focus so much on, you know, the types of products that banks traditionally offer and service. But we, we fail to ask our customers what it is that they need and create products and services around that. Mm-hmm. So um, ADM was a was an offshoot of that idea, and it was very successful. And it was a joy and a privilege to to have my team and to have the customers uh, for for fifteen years. It was a yeah. joy.
0: And that's that's terrific. It was you know obviously we knew each other from my days at TBS. Yeah, and there was a little bit of overlap there. Let's just take a step back because you and I lived and breathed this industry. Just for our listeners' purposes, uh, can you explain? you know, how ADM operated? Because historically, you know, back in the days with our grandparents and even prior to ADM and so forth, you know, if you had 10, you know, a million dollars usually or $500,000, usually, you know, your grandparents or people would go to five different community banks, $100,000 per bank and per tax ID. Can you just give a little bit of a high-level overview on um, ADM and, you know, the concept behind it and how it operated?
1: I would tell you that it's a pretty simple concept. It's very tricky on the back end from a technology perspective, but in very simplistic terms, if you have a customer that has, let's say they have a million dollars, and you put that million dollars into, you know, Texas Capital Bank, Mm -hmm. that million dollars is protected at $250,000 for that business, or let's just use a business as an example. So in the event that Texas Capital Bank would fail, the FDIC would, have two hundred and fifty thousand of protection for that million dollar depositor, and then they would give a voucher for the remaining balance of seven hundred and fifty thousand to that business. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a business owner, and I'm, I've run businesses. You can't make payroll with a voucher, and people can't feed their families with a voucher. So that becomes really complicated. So deposit aggregation, which you know, I, I think I'm one of the pioneers in this industry. Became very simple to say that million dollars comes to me and my firm. I will take that million dollars and break it up into pieces that are just below 250,000. So I'd put, let's call it 245,000 at Bank A, at Bank B, at Bank C, and Bank D. And then at Bank E, I'd put 20,000. Customer gets one statement (laughs) with all of the banks listed and their deposit balances and then they get a competitive rate. So now you have full FDIC coverage on your million and at a rate that is competitive in the market. And that's in a sense deposit aggregation.
0: Very simple to understand and obviously makes a lot of sense and in today's environment with what's going on and that kind of segues into the next question, what's been going on in banking and what happened earlier in the year with Silicon Valley, Signature and First Republic. I think that makes these Aggregation products that much more attractive. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the earlier bank failures this year? I can, and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and the psychological impact it has created for the retail banking customer, and how these aggregation products maybe will give them comfort.
1: Yeah, so I can tell you that the the banks that failed, you know, it's really a sad story about those bank failures. And it was almost a perfect storm. None of those banks that that had failed earlier this year were bad banks in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they were really, you know, kind of the princesses of the industry. They created a lot of great products and services. They had great clients. But they 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 made a couple catastrophic mistakes. And the first is mm. the, the concentration risk of a certain type of depositor. And we'll use Silicon Valley Bank in, as an example. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was known as the bank for venture capital and private equity. So a lot of portfolio deposits for those companies were put into Silicon Valley Bank. And we're talking 10 million, 40 million, 30 million. I mean, these were big deposits all in you know the same industry. A lot of that tech related. So when the tech industry has a problem and they need cash, they start to draw on those deposit accounts, which causes a problem at the bank. And so the next thing you look at is their bond portfolio. Banks, you know, take their excess money and they invest it very simply into an investment portfolio. Well, if they go to, you know, need liquidity and they have to exit their their portfolio, and if the portfolio has losses, it becomes problematic from a liquidity standpoint at the bank. So, it's unfortunate that these things happen, but they did. I think it really made a lot of people think about uninsured deposits. Uh, and I'm not talking about bankers or regulators. I'm talking about everyday business owners that I love and that I've loved to work with for the last 20 plus years in protecting their funds. Love it so much so, Joe, that I'm starting another deposit aggregation company that will be the that will be the Cadillac uh, or we'd say the Land Rover of this industry once again, because that's yeah, that you mentioned that, that to me. Yeah, that, you know, what is great when it, when it happened in the spring, you know, I had joined private equity and I love the private equity space. It just became an opportunity to say, you know, there really needs to be a voice uh, that's really loud. And that is just a standard in the industry, people to go to for deposit aggregation. And so we're so we're working on that as we speak.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, and that I know you mentioned that to me uh, earlier in the year when we uh, spoke. So I'm glad to hear that that's moving along. Because what I'm seeing, and obviously I'm removed from my days TBS, uh, but still, when I'm and I speak to my colleagues and I see what's going on in the banking sector, I mean, when I left, you know, when they were sold, the wholesale market took off. I mean, yeah. it went on fire. Interest rates, I mean, literally, when 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 we exited last June in July, I mean, all the banks started, you know, coming back saying we need deposits, we need deposits. Now rates were rising. Okay, you know, we're, yep. where we're at now. So, so can you explain for our listeners? You know, rates were rising, and they're, they're, you know they're at historic highs now over the last at least you know, 20 years. But lending is slowing down. Banks are holding back lending because of the inversion in the curve and the concerns about you know going into a recession. So, can you explain if you know lending is slowing down? Why is the wholesale market on fire?
1: Well, you have, to, you have to imagine that it, is the, it has become so difficult for banks to find deposits. And there's a number of reasons that that's happened. In 2022, it was the first year in U.S. history where non-banks lent more money out than traditional banks. And so customers are starting to find that there's other places that they can borrow money. They get better service. They maybe have better technology. And the banking sector is trying to figure that out. When you have banks like Apple that, you know, brings in $10 billion in 120 days, all that $10 billion was sitting in community banks. So the community banks, if they can't find deposits, it makes it tough to lend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you get, that's, I mean, for your listeners, the simplest thing to think about is how does a bank make money? Well, they take in your deposit, they pay you the littlest they can, and they loan out your deposit for the highest rate possible. And the right. difference between the two... Is how they make money, and so if they can't bring in low cost deposits and lend it out, it's a problem. And so you're seeing banks pulling back on the lending side because they're really struggling with finding low cost deposits. The technology, the cost to run a bank, the capital that's required—it's it's really tough to run a bank these days. And I I I my hat goes off to any bank that can can make money right now and return a return value to their shareholders it is a really tough to be in the banking industry today
0: do you think yeah. it's more because they can't find the deposits
1: or That's is it part a com- it.
0: or is yeah. it a combination that you know they're concerned about the economy slowing down and they want to hold back the, ra- the readings?
1: i think it's both i think if you know if 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 depositors are expecting north of 5% on a deposit but they can't lend it out for more than 7 Right. That becomes a problem. And then you think about every all this chatter around the commercial real estate market uh, and, you know, what's going to happen when a lot of these commercial real estate deals that are five years, you know, if they're seasoned, they're going to start coming due and they're going to reprice at, you know, 300 basis points higher than they were originally written for, you know, can the underlying borrower make the rent? You know, and then they boost the rents. Can people afford to rent the property or rent the apartments or whatever the case may be? So it becomes a trickle down. You know, it's a problem that is in every community bank across America. It's a it's a balance like I've never seen before that. I mean, it's walking on a tightrope right now.
0: You hit the nail on the head with the uh, the commercial real estate market, And that that could be the other, uh, you know, hammer that falls as, you know, these rates reset higher. You know, is Correct. that gonna spiral and are you gonna see other Silicon Valley types of situations happen in the banking sector? So well
1: guess- here's what I here's what I'll tell you, Joe, is that the, the 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 trade that Silicon Valley tried to make when they were trying to exit their bond portfolio and raise capital is a good trade. It was just six months too early. Mm-hmm. You're gonna start seeing a lot of banks taking losses in their in their investment portfolio to get liquidity. So it, again, what they did was not wrong per se. The timing was just bad. And the and the PR around it was bad. You know, going out on social media and talking about raising $2 billion worth of capital, I, that that probably wasn't the wisest decision. But we can all look. We can all have rear view blind, you know, 2020 vision right behind mm-hmm. us what we should have done. But now I think the rest of the banking community knows that it's tough to raise capital right now. The sub debt markets are closed. They need liquidity, and so they need to get really good at ma- managing their balance sheets. I mean, this is now be an art form uh, in the banking sector.
0: No, I I agree, and I and I see that. And like I said, the timing for ADM. Now, number two, couldn't couldn't be better based on, you know, what's going on in the landscape. People would think otherwise, but you know, as a seasoned banker like yourself, you know, you, you know this better than anybody.
1: Well, I think there's I think there's a lot of businesses out there that, you know, even if you're sitting on three hundred thousand dollars, you don't want to have any of it exposed. And and there's mm-hmm. no reason to have it exposed. There's just no reason to have that anymore. It'll be interesting to see what the FDIC comes up with as a as a mm-hmm as a fix. Uh, I have my personal view on what that fix should be. Um, I'm sure it's not received as well, you know, as other options. But um, I do believe that the we used to have something called the Transaction Account Guarantee Program back in mm-hmm. 2009-10 that basically said you get full FDIC insurance on your checking account, uh, but you get zero rate of interest. So anyone that had right. a checking account, you dump all your money in there and it's fully insured. And that lasted for several years. I would like to see the FDIC bring back the transaction account guarantee program for right. non-interest-bearing checking accounts and cap it at, you know, maybe it's ten million or five million. So
0: I heard there was like, yeah, yeah. I heard there was, think there was some some legislation out there earlier in the year when when this happened. They were talking about one congressman, I think, was talking about five million dollar cap on these on transaction accounts. But yeah,
1: they yeah, yeah. and it. I think. They need to do something because you know two hundred and fifty thousand. When you think about that, as a from a business perspective, that that that, that number doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen an increase in FDIC insurance. Gosh, in twenty years, fifteen years, whatever the year is. But it's so we'll see. We'll see what they come up with. But I, I do advocate for a for a non-interest bearing account, cap it at let's say five to ten million, and that way businesses know that the, if they need payroll, they need to protect payroll, operating capital. They can put it in that account. They're not going to earn any interest, but at least it's protected.
0: You know and that will create a lot of stability. You know in the it marketplace,
1: would. it would, and it would help the community banks. I mean, after the Silicon Valley Bank and the First Republic and all of that happened this spring, we saw a lot of deposits in community banks fly over to the twelve largest banks in the country, mm-hmm. you know, thinking that oh, these big banks are safer. You know, and The problem, there's a couple, a lot of problems with that. Number one, the big banks need capital to support those large deposits. So that's an issue. And number two, the community banks are the backbone of this country. I support them a thousand percent. I will do everything I can to help the community banks. And, you know, when you think about a town that you guys are listeners or, you know, small town America, Waldo, Wisconsin, you know, with with, with 500 people in the town and there's a diner and they bank at the Waldo State Bank, for example. You know, Waldo State Bank goes goes under or goes out of business. Who's helping the diner? Who's helping mm-hmm. the mechanic? Who's who's doing the mortgage loans in those small towns? We need community banks. We need to support community banks. And, you know, I, companies like mine, you know, we do everything we can at Patriot to support community banks across this country. And, and, and all of us need to do that.
0: I agree. I mean, you know, my mom, she's with a community bank uh, where I grew up. And when all this happened, you know... I was, you know, uh, heavily, you know, looking at the bank and making sure, you know, everything was okay. But once again, I guess, you know, the the thing that the retail investor consumer needs to understand is how the insurance works. But yes, the community banks are the backbone of, you know, America and of small businesses. And I agree with you that we have to support them, and you know, because they need to survive and, and flourish. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Patriots. Uh, that's a good segue. Can you uh, walk through? can you ex- talk to our listeners about uh, Patriot financial yeah. partners and you yeah. know what your focus is and what you're seeing out there currently in the landscape of banking?
1: Yeah, so Patriot is a private equity firm that you know raises raises money with from investors. And then we deploy those investments into the community banks, the sector of community banking, and then the financial services technology firms that support community banks. So it's a very, very focused private equity firm within the community banking sector, which I love and was very drawn to being a part of this private equity firm because I just I I want to, I want to do everything we can to support community banks. I think I've said that a number of times. But that's what makes Patriot, I think, different from other PE firms, is that it's got this super laser-focused strategy in in that marketplace. And it's been very successful. It's been around since 2007. The founders are pioneers and just some of the best people I've ever worked with in my career. Amazing individuals at Patriot that offer... yeah, there. It is just, a, it's a privilege and a blessing to be part of that organization.
0: That's great. Do you this Patriot and startups to novo banks, or is it strictly, you know? Existing?
1: Yeah, not necessarily. It's, it's you know, private equity is unlike venture capital. You know, private equity is regulated pretty, pretty hard, and venture capital is really more for a startup type situation. Not to say if the right opportunity didn't present itself to to Patriot, we wouldn't look at it. Um, But I would tell you that, you know, 100 deals a year that come over the desk of Patriot, we probably invest in three to four. So it's a it's a pretty tough bar to get over. You know, we look for banks that have that have had proven results, that have a strong management team, that that really are embracing technology, have strong regulatory uh, and compliance related um, individuals within the bank. And we're very, we're very, very keen on the banks in this country that are doing things the right way, and and it's getting tougher and tougher because the cost of running a bank is getting to be prohibitive. I mean, it's you know not only is it from a you know talent perspective, but you think about the regulatory oversight, you think about technology. How do you protect everyone's money from you know bad bad actors? Right, right. It, it, yeah. it costs a ton of money to. Have technology in your bank, and so we're always looking for those banks that have really managed their balance sheets well. It's a good, solid management team, good succession planning, and you know, and have returned profits to their shareholders. I mean, at the end of the day, in private equity and in banking, it's about your shareholders. You know, (laughs) and got to take care of not only our customers but return something to our shareholders.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I would think today in today's environment would be a great time to be invested in these community banks, given the backdrop of what happened over the last six to eight months. You know, as they say, you know, they're throwing, everybody's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So, or, you know, the old adage, you know, you know, buy when there's blood in the street. Yeah. So I would imagine, you know, you guys are, you know, actively, I'm probably seeing tons of banks knocking on your door. Are you in, do you currently have a fund? Are you raising money or are you- We're not raising-
1: Yeah, we're not going to raise our next fund until probably later next year. But we are we are actively looking for investments for fund for our last fund. You know, those you're right. I mean, this is a great time to invest in community banks. If you've looked at their stock prices, you know, all of the stock prices, I think most banks are trading below book or at book. And so it's it's a good time, especially if it's a well-run bank to to jump into the community banking sector, because all of us all of us use banks. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't have a life without using a bank. And so we know that the banking industry is not going anywhere. It's not going away. So it's making sure that we're finding the right investments, uh, working with the right management teams and and really, you know, providing value to our shareholders.
0: Okay. And do you also invest in FinTechs? Uh, you know,
1: we do. Yeah, we do. So we uh we we actively look at financial technology firms. Um and it could be anything from payments to technology, onboarding software. Uh, deposit aggregation companies, you name it, we we look at them. Uh, and there's there's a lot of fintechs out there. Okay. We're going to start to see that shaking loose too, because you know when you see that there's, for example, like onboarding, you know, software or technology. If there's a like, 300 companies that are offering that, it's like that can't last. There's going to be a lot of consolidation. Some are going to go by the wayside. So we'll see who the players end up shaking out. You know who the best of the best are. But it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in financial services. That's for sure.
0: No, I can. I, I see that, and uh, I, I imagine it must be exciting. You know, with your new hat, is banking av- as a service? I guess that's a, a, an area in the fintech space that I mean, we see all of these companies popping up that are you know working with institutions and gathering tons of deposits. You know, the plans yeah. of the world and so forth.
1: Yeah, that banking as a service is a hot, you know, is a hot term these days. <clears throat> but I can tell you the regulators are really starting to look at that close more closely um, because yeah. it does present risk. You know, from a anti-money laundering, know your customer, you know, OFAC, it, it really presents a lot of risk for the bank. So the regulators have got a keen, you know, laser focus on these banking as a service type um, off- offerings and banks that are working in that space. I think it's great. I think you're you're going to start to see more banks becoming kind of a if you think of like a hub and spoke model where the bank is you know in the middle, but then all these products and services spoke off the bank that you know support small business and retail accounts. Uh, we're going to start seeing more of that. So it's not going to go away. In fact, I think it'll it'll become commonplace as we move forward. But all the people that are in it today, they're you know they're they're cutting their teeth on the regulatory requirements of that. And I know that they, they're considered what's called like a novel bank, uh, <laughs> if they're doing these things that are different than every other bank.
0: So let me ask you: Well, uh, before we, uh, you know, go into some of the uh, I- areas of interest in, y- in your life, what's going on with interest rates? Do you have any thoughts on where we are with interest rates? The inversion of the curve? Do you see us closer to the end of uh, rates increasing? Do you have any thoughts on?
1: Yeah, I I do, and I, I my thoughts have changed in the last. I would say. 30 days. I think we're going to be higher for longer. Uh, I think that, you know, when the administration came out and said that that inflation was transitory, you know, everyone thought that was a crazy comment. I am starting to believe that it could, in fact, be slightly transitory, but over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that rates are going to come down anytime soon. Um, I do anticipate uh, that there will be another Increase in rates, uh, whether it's you know ne- you know coming soon or by the end of the year, but mm-hmm. I don't I don't see, and we see no signs of interest rates coming down within the next twelve to you know sixteen months.
0: Okay, well that's good for aggregators. Okay,
1: yeah, good for aggregators. Bad for businesses <laughs> that are borrowing money, though. Bad, for, well, bad for you and you know people that have whole net- no, lines of credit. Bad for people yep. that have you know adjustable rate mortgages. I mean. Yeah. high interest rates it's high interest rates you know are not great in and of them uh, in and of itself however you combine high interest rates with inflation yeah. and if you you know you I'm sure everywhere in America is, is is seeing what we're seeing here in Wisconsin real estate prices are not going down no. and no. you know it, it in people that had 30 year fixed mortgages at under 3% they're not selling anytime soon so it, that something has to give here. Uh, you know, you, there's a lot of people in this country that are suffering. They can't, you know, afford groceries. When you go to buy a gallon of milk and it's five dollars a gallon, I mean, how do you feed a family of four? How do you, how right. how do you make ends meet? I mean, it is really tough out there.
0: No, it so, absolutely is, and I don't yeah. think people understand that. You know, with the inflation that we've seen, even though you know rates have come down. The cost of living, the cost of products, gas, energy have gone up, and you know once they get inflation under control, those prices aren't coming down. You know, right. co- you know when I go, you know, get my breakfast at the diner, and it's up at two dollars, the Grand Slam breakfast. It's not yeah. coming down. It's not coming no. down. So, Middle America, you know, that's another you know tax. Yeah, Yeah, they're
1: getting well. Unless it's not only the inflation, it's then you slap how much taxes are out there. I mean, it's not just the state and local, but federal taxes, taxes. I mean, it's everywhere, and it's It's it really is killing the middle class, and it's and it's a it's it's horrible to see. And the banking industry doesn't want that. The banking industry wants to help people. They want to lend. They want to see people's dreams become a reality. But if people don't have, you know. Wage inflation that's keeping up with inflation—it becomes really, really difficult. And, mm-hmm. and and I don't have all the answers for it. I mean, I have my own personal viewpoints on the political landscape, but you know, it doesn't. Not everyone agrees, as you know. That can get a little dicey as well. <laughs> um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge.
0: No, absolutely. No, I think you gave a very good background of you know your accomplishments over the years. Let's just take a step back, you know, because I was reading your bio and I see that you uh, founded the Marquette University commercial banking program. That's pretty impressive. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I can. I, you know, I did that kind of by happenstance because as I talk to community banks around the country, you find that succession planning is very difficult. And when I say that, it's like who's going to run the bank when the, you know, the baby boomers retire, right? And if you think about where community banks are located, It's not a sexy, it's not sexy, you know, to if you want to stay in a small town, how do you get the education and the know-how to work at a bank? And I said to my kids, with all of the consolidation of, I'll just use Wisconsin for an example, we only have a handful, not even a handful, of state chartered banks here headquartered. We'll use Associated Bank as an example. And Associated Bank uh, headquartered in Green Bay, Wisconsin you know, they have a lot of philanthropy, they sponsor different events, they give money in the community, they have a lot of executive jobs. When associated banks of the world or of the country merge with other banks, and those jobs then go away, which is what's happened in the state of Wisconsin, we lose not only, you know, the philanthropic efforts of the bank, but we lose a lot of those opportunities for people to learn how to work in a bank and work up into a bank president or a bank CEO. So when you don't have the management training programs, you don't have you know um, some type of uh, opportunity for young people to know how do I ever become a bank president? Like what's the track? I went to a couple different institutions: University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison, and then I went to Merquette and a trade school called WCTC, Waukesha County Technical College. And I told them this is the problem of the banking industry as I know it, and we need a solution. And the only progressive University that came back and said, Kelly, we love this idea, but how do we do it? We worked on it for about a year and then we got it approved for Marquette to train in a commercial banking school tomorrow's bank presidents. And so it's a full uh, commercial banking program within mm-hmm. a finance degree. And when you are in your sophomore, junior, sophomore, and junior year and senior year, you intern at banks that are part of our program. And then once you graduate, you have the opportunity to go to that bank. And it basically is a management training program on steroids. And so Marquette University is known for Marquette lawyers and Marquette dentists. And now we say we're also known for Marquette bankers. And we're really proud of that. Yeah, it was a really cool thing to do.
0: Um, I I mean, that's
1: cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And I didn't go to Marquette. I got kicked out of college when I was 19 years old. So for me, it was more having been in the industry and just seeing, you know, regurgitating bankers that probably should have quit many years ago because they were not good. And they just go from bank to bank to bank because there is no new blood. There's no young youth in that industry. We need to teach. We need to teach young people. The banking industry is the best industry in America, in my opinion. We are servant leaders. We we, we need to create and, and, and support servant leadership taking care of our neighbors and friends in the community. And that was lost and it's been lost in our industry for a long time. So I feel that the Marquette program really instills those values of servant leadership and bank- and an- a great education in commercial banking.
0: Well, that's great. I, I really uh, commend you for that. and it-, it sounds like a great program. I really appreciate your time, Kelly, uh, joining the show today.
1: Um, yeah, anytime, Joe.
0: We, we finished our slot, but uh, for our listeners, um, if they wanted to learn more about Patriot you know, Financial Partners and yourself, how do they uh, find information on uh, the firm?
1: Yeah, they can They can find me. You can go to LinkedIn and you can find information. It's under Kelly A. Brown, Patriot Financial Partners. Or you can go to our website, Patriot, F as in Frank, P as in called.com. Or you can send me an email at kbrown at PatriotFP.com. And I'm more than happy to help anyone that's looking for advice or needs information um, if they're sitting on large deposits and they need some information about how to take care of that, I'm more than happy to help uh, Any
0: help. Yeah. Well, that that is terrific. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's show of Freedom to Buy, uh, presented each week by SuperNet. You can learn more uh, about our company by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can also listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Cannabis Radio. Uh, Please join us next week for our next Freedom to Buy show. Thank you for joining us this afternoon and have a good day.